Welcome to the Shema Podcast, the podcast for the perplexed, where Torah insights intertwine through personal stories as well as interviews with leading Torah scholars demonstrate the empowering qualities of Torah and mitzvot. For more great Torah learning through Torch, the Torah Outreach Center of Houston, go to torchweb.org. Now to the show. Welcome back to the Shema Podcast, my friends. Before we get started on the regularly scheduled programming, I wanted to dedicate this episode in the merit of someone very special to me. One of the, the mitzvot I've been really davening to have the merit to fulfill properly is to love your fellow Jew as yourself. Well, I had come across an email that Habad sent out breaking down the etymology of the Hebrew word for love. As the Hebrew language is the building blocks of creation, there's so much you can learn about what a word really means. And the the word is spelled Aleph, Hey, Vet, Hey. But what the article pointed out was that within that word is Hey, Vet, which means to give. And that definitionally is what it means to love, which is so different than the world around us that tells us in Hollywood that what love is is a feeling the other person brings to you, although that is taking, not giving. And what I'm starting to learn is that not only does the Almighty bring text in front of me, but he also brings people into my life that really demonstrate and, and know how to do that particular mitzvah that I am striving and working to do. And this particular individual, early on when I started doing this podcast, which was totally incognito, because at the same time I was launching this, I was talking with my colleagues at work about launching a podcast on behavioral finance. And when I was on the speaking gamut, I was mentioning it. And I was just thinking like at that podcast episode I did early on with Rabbi Yokoff Wolby on debating futilely Rabbi Yokoff Wolby, I thought some of the people in there that may be from the Christian persuasion may have found offense with it. So I'd never mentioned my name, didn't put my name anywhere. And this gentleman found out who I was, reached out to me in LinkedIn, and shot me a word of encouragement. And we spoke, and he's always encouraged me, but it's more than that. What he does is, it's, it's, I mean, loving someone else is more than just they ask you for X and you give them X, but he is constantly just listening to the podcast and then finding out things he thinks I need. Like when we did the podcast episode on how to do the Havdala candle, when Shabbos was entering into the first night of Pesach, and he sent me a special Havdalah candle for doing just that, or he'll send me books. So I wanted to do this episode in the merit of Yehuda Engelman, who is this person, who is my role model in this area, who can be all of our role model, may him, his wife, his children, his children's children, all their descendants be blessed with great connection to Hashem, Torah insights that bring clarity to everything in life, and all the material blessings of health and financial success and financial abundance. Amen. I want to bring on another role model, Rabbi Busco, who is my role model of someone who has a dedication to learning, deep thought, going bold with whatever he does in the service of Hashem. We were just talking about his Torchwood, which most people several years ago would have said, that's insane. No one's ever done that. But he said, I don't care. I'm doing it. And I love that about him. I find that very inspirational. And the last episode we did on this theme of getting together and having him be our coach 
on the upcoming month, I found was extremely helpful. I got a lot of good feedback that other people, you guys thought was extremely helpful. So I think this idea that Hashem gave me, well, now I know it's from Hashem's, I know it's a good idea. When it's not a good idea, I know it's my idea. But I think this is going to be extremely beneficial to us. So Rabbi Busco, a.k.a. Coach Busco, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. I'm glad you find it valuable and other people find it valuable because I do as well. These aren't my ideas. I'm channeling things that I've learned. And so when I repeat them, I also have to listen to them. So this is valuable for me and I appreciate the opportunity. Thank you. Great. Yeah. To bring it to the forefront of our mind, even things we've learned in the past is important. So, so coach, you got your whole team here in the locker room with you and they're eager for the pep talk for the upcoming month of Elul, the playbook, the strategy, so we can make a success of this upcoming month as well. Great. So a few words about the month of Elul. Before we get into what's practical, hopefully we can take some ideas that are, that are insightful and that are more actionable. But you mentioned last time that you'd like to know some of the other interesting elements of the month and things that we know from Kabbalah. So just very quick, we can go over some of those. Great. First of all, the month of Elul is associated with the Mazal, the constellation or the zodiac of Betula, Besula, which is the virgin. It's rooted in earth, the earth element, which is cool. It's after the summer months, it's starting to cool down, not in Houston, of course, but it's a, it's a cold and calculating style of, of trait. It corresponds also to the trait of Yesod in the Sfirot, the Yesod, which is the sixth of the first seven of these building blocks of spirituality. When Yesod means foundation, and it's what takes everything that has previously been built and draws it forth, draws it down to where it will ultimately become manifest. Yesod is represented also by the sixth letter, which is a vav, which is a straight line. It starts at the very top and brings things all the way down to the bottom. So this is the idea. We're going to be channeling a lot of the things that we've been building and making them real, bringing them down into the world of practicality and action, which is what this month is, is really going to be about. Not that other months aren't actionable, but this is really the time to step up. There's a gemstone that's related to every month. And this month is the diamond, which is, of course, the most valuable. And not coincidentally, of the 12 months, there are 12 tribes. And this month relates to the tribe of Zavulun, which is the merchant tribe. They were the, the ones who sailed out and did business and probably were in the diamond business. So this is a, it's a time for, that's auspicious, especially for business calculations and and uh, those kinds of things. So if you're in that area, this might be uh, an auspicious time as well. All right, so perfect. So let me, I want to just comment on that. First idea makes total sense. It's like since we left Sukkos, we've been out there building these different things for ourselves, working on these different characters, learning and growing. And now this month, before we go back into the period of Rosh Hashanah, we take all that, and we use it to structure a new foundation for the upcoming year. Is that the idea there? So, yes, you're right. In terms of the structure of the yearly holidays, it starts really with Pesach. Pesach is the, the origin. And we build up from Pesach to 
Shavuos, okay. that 50-day that time period. And then in the middle here, we have we have this summer months, which really should, we spoke about last month, which really should be the pinnacle of spirituality and truth and manifest love. And we misappropriated that and it turned into a time of destruction. And so now what we have a time period, what the our sages refer to as the Shevet and the Chemta, the seven weeks of consolation, which starts with Tisha B'Av and then from seven weeks from there until Rosh Hashanah. So we're in this process right now. So yes, we started with Pesach and we built all the way up to Shavuos. We had this massive climax of spirituality and then we crashed it with Tisha B'Av. And now we're in the process of rebuilding that, which is, this is a very normal, very human style. Well, now it is at least after Adam has established that as part of our reality. But this is now a reality in our lives that we go through these ups and downs. And so we're in the process now of recovering from a crash. So we've built a lot and now we are drawing it forth. And now we have this month of Elul, which is an incredible time period. In yeshiva, it was my favorite time. It was on fire. Now here's the thing. It's only on fire if you're excited about changing. If you're not excited about changing, then it's just dread. Because here's this month where everyone's focused on, okay, here's your last chance to get yourself in order before you are judged or really defined as a person. Who are you? That's that snapshot, Rosh Hashanah. Next month, we'll talk about that a little bit. So here's your chance to fix yourself up if you're not ready or willing to do any of the work. So it's just a month of anxiety. And that's no fun at all. You know, this idea of the, the diamond, you know, the, the Jews are like diamonds to Hashem. And because the perfection of a diamond, it's the flaws are much more easily visible. Sure. Yeah, there are a lot of, that's a great one. Hopefully they should be easy to see. We, we should be given the ability to see, you know, in last week's Parsha, Parsha's Re'eh, there was, there's a great rabbi, Rabbi, I think it was Shalom Torsky, is that Sal? Who said that, you know, the, the verse starts, Look, see, I have placed before you, I have given before you blessing and curse. Rabbi Torsky, Zatzal said, the first thing it says, Look, I have given. Meaning he's given us the ability to see. He's given us the ability to analyze ourselves and see our flaws. That is, of course, the first step is that self-awareness. Right. It's a month of change. It's a month of excitement when you're ready for change. The, the question really becomes, how do we change and how do we know what we're shooting for? This can be intimidating, especially if we don't know what our goal is. If it's very undefined, it's like, okay, I, I know I should be improving my life. I should be a better person than I was before, but it still seems very vague and abstract. And in what ways should I grow? And you know, it, even before you get that specific of having goals for what to achieve. There's the general despair of, can I even grow? And can I change? And that's something that we can address today. One of the biggest challenges for any time we do this thing is that there's just going to be way too much to talk about. We got to relegate ourselves to a couple strong ideas and focus on those. So let's talk about how to set a plan for Chuva, how to inspire ourselves to really know that it's possible to change. First and foremost, we have to know that first we think that we are this character that we are playing out right now. And we define ourselves based on our current behavior and our habits. We think that's me. That's who I am. The rabbi of my synagogue in in Jerusalem, Rabbi Yechezko Weinfeld, he used to give an analogy. 
there was a zoo owner who had lions and I think the lions died and they didn't have it anymore. And that was their big attraction. They always advertised they had lions. So no more lions. The owner of the zoo is upset. What's he going to do? So he puts an ad, a discreet ad in the newspaper saying we're hiring at the zoo. And that's really all it says. We need two, two people to come to the zoo. So two guys sign up and they get there, they meet the owner and the owner says, okay, look, first you got to sign this <laughs> NDA. <laughs> Here's what we need you to do. We've, we can only afford these lion costumes. We can't afford lions. So we want to hire you to just sit in the back, very far away, just lie down, don't move, just be in these lion costumes, maybe wiggle around a little bit from here, you know, so they see that there's some movement right. and you'll be the lions. Okay, fine. It's easy job. So they take the job and, and things are going well uh, for the for the first let's, couple months. People are walking by and, okay, they see lions in the back there. At least they're there. One day, they're getting a bit restless, these two guys in the lion costumes. And they decide, you know, they're going to take a five-minute break. What's the big deal? Right. So they take off their masks and get a coffee. And they're sitting in the back and <laughs> having a conversation, drinking coffee. And everyone that's there at the zoo is looking. <laughs> the, the secret's out. Right. And, of course, they get very upset and start demanding refunds. And everyone that's been to the zoo for the past couple months goes back and demands a refund. And the whole business crashes. And the, the zoo owner is furious. And he starts screaming at these guys. And they, they don't understand why the zookeeper's so upset. And why are all these people freaking out? So for hours and hours and hours and days upon weeks... They've been lions. For five minutes, they took off the mask and they were people. Most, the vast majority of the time, they were lions. So what's the big deal? But obviously, you can dress up like a lion for as long as you want. But those five minutes or even five seconds of revealing that you're a person under a mask is enough to determine the reality. We walk around all the time. We think that this is who we are. We're wearing lion costumes. And some of us show up to shul on Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, and we think that we're pretending to be big tzaddikim, big righteous people, praying and being close to Hashem. And we think that, we're, that that's the character that we're playing. But the truth is that that's, that's really us. There's a, there's a soul that we truly are. That is our identity. But the soul is locked into the body, and it's very heavily concealed and its powers are dimmed and dampened by the restrictions of the body. Our work here is to try to align our behaviors and actions with the soul to maybe try to open up those channels a little bit and allow the soul to have more of an influence on the body. And you have this bilateral relationship between the body and the soul. But what's really happening, you know, our perception of reality is locked into the body. We see from the perspective of the physical world and therefore we assume naturally that that is our identity that our point of reference is this world and the fact that we have a soul is very theoretical maybe even we believe it but we still treat it as something that's abstract and theoretical and the thing that's the the easiest step to change is just to have a bit of a paradigm shift, just to change our consciousness, to recognize that that is not the reality, that it's the exact opposite, that I am stuck in this body. I am this powerful soul that yearns to be connected to the creator of the universe, and I'm being dampened by this body that's holding me back. And when you start to think like that, it changes your perspective of 
everything that you're doing in this world. And you recognize that, oh, this world is just, it's a construct for me to navigate and, and accomplish what I really need to do. And then everything starts to naturally play out that way. So that's, that's the good first step. That paradigm shift of recognizing I am not a body, I am a soul. Okay. We also need to recognize that we have absolutely no idea of what we're capable of. My, my rabbi in Israel that I just mentioned, he used to say another, another story. I don't know if it's a joke or a true story, but back in the day, when a boy would go to yeshiva, it would be a big deal for his parents to send him to yeshiva. And it was extraordinarily expensive and required a great deal of sacrifice for the family to send one kid to a yeshiva. And even there, they were dirt poor. The yeshivas didn't have money and the boys didn't have money. And so therefore, it was very common in those times for the boys to have to visit surrounding families that lived near the yeshiva and get meals at their houses. And they would have to beg. And, and it was embarrassing. It was humiliating um, to ask for charity every single day for every meal. And so there was one boy who, in this town in particular, this yeshiva was s smaller. And so this boy had to go to the same family every single day to eat. And I guess they didn't really make him feel like he was part of the family. And it, it was really uncomfortable for him. And someone asked him once, if you would win the lottery, completely change your life, what would you do with all that money? And he thought about it. He said, um, you know, I'd, I'd take the money and I'd buy seven houses. And in each house, I would set up a different family so that I could go to someone else every single day of the week. <laughs> Our aspirations are so pathetic because they're, they're limited to what we think is possible for ourselves now. But that's the problem. The problem is the thing that we're thinking with. And so there's not really a big way out of that. The best we can do for now is to realize that I have no idea what my potential is. And we need to trust Hashem that if I follow this path, Hashem will take me to places that I wouldn't dream are possible. And I have to be willing to let go of these restrictions that are holding me back in this life, which is scary because we, we like the comfortable known, even if it's not helping us, it still feels normal and it feels comfortable and it feels natural. And we have to be willing to let go of that and experience something that's beyond what we could have imagined. Right. Something I've been contemplating for two weeks now that I'm not sure which organization or what I'm going to end up doing for a living. So it's like been on the forefront of my mind, this whole idea, like what's possible? You know, everything's for the, the good, but there's that uncertainty but you just sort of have to like, I've been just focusing on like just a bit of con, like I know this is going to work out great, but, and, and trying not to limit myself as far as the options that are available. So it is almost like leaving a certain place where you worked for 10 years. It is like taking off a lion suit and saying, okay, now not defining myself by just, you know, what, what I've been doing for the last 10 years with a certain organization. Exactly. Yeah. Right. Let God drive. Yeah. Right. Exactly. We often limit ourselves far too much. One of the things I want you to address is that when it comes to introspection and really trying to find out things you need to work on, you know, we, we do have that pesky Yetzirah that puts blinders up for us so we can't see things. Do you have any advice there? Because normally those are the ones that the Yetzirah is really trying to focus on blinding us from are the big ones where we can make the most change. You have any advice on how to see those things where maybe we do have those blind spots on and we, we can't see them? I guess you ask your wife and she'll provide yeah. a detailed you, list. You know what? I, you said it as a joke, but that is the answer. 
If you're married, that is the answer. This is exactly what Hashem says. It's in the Torah. This is what your wife is for. And she does, she'll tell you. She might tell you in ways that aren't direct. It might be from her behavior or if she's annoyed with you in certain areas. This is Hashem speaking to you through your wife. And so it, it, seems, like a, it seems like a joke. It's a humorous thing to say, but it, it is absolutely true. If you're married, then you have a great level of insight that's right there with you all the time that can help you with that area. You, now that you say that, like a week and a half ago, I was preoccupied with something. Why well, I just lost my job. So I was a little preoccupied with like trying to get everything together. And my wife was very excited about something and she came and started talking to me. And I wasn't like really engaged with what she was talking about. And I could tell I had really, really her feelings and I apologized. And the next morning when I was at shul, I knew when I was davening, I was doing the same thing to Hashem. Mm-hmm. Like my mind was drifted and I realized like, that's what Hashem was telling me too. Like when you're here, focus on me. This is, this is our time. And it really got my thoughts just to, to bear down on you know, the words I was saying. That's beautiful. Right. So the, now the question is, what if you're not married? You know, maybe some of our listeners don't have a spouse that, that will give them that insight. And the, the best thing to focus on in general is not the big things. It's not the big things you're going to tackle because most likely the challenges that are going to be the biggest challenges in your life, you're going to have them forever. We're designed with, with flaws that are not easily changed. These are deeply embedded in our nature, in our what's called tchunas and nefesh, the, the style of our personality, of who we are. And these are things that are meant to be lifelong challenges. And yes, the work always needs to be done on those things as well. However, there are other ways that we can change and improve our lives that can affect everything else as well. Any sort of ground that we're making on the Yitzhahara and we're improving ourselves, it's going to continuously add Kedusha to ourselves. Like our sages say, mitzvah goreres mitzvah. A mitzvah leads, causes another mitzvah. Like we were speaking about earlier, once you, you align your actions with your soul, it opens up those channels and your soul has more of an ability to influence your, your waking thoughts and your body, and you'll naturally be drawn in that area as, as well. So the best thing to do is tackle the easy stuff, things that you know you can accomplish, and you're ignoring those. Because the truth is, if you're not doing at least that, that's going to be the biggest claim on you in the heavens. Because they're going to say, look, this was so easy. Why didn't you just do this? Right. This other thing is a huge, okay, that's your big challenge. Of course, you're not going to tackle that right away. That's your lifelong challenge. But here, this is easy. You could have at least done this. And so therefore, in addition to just that claim of why not, it's so easy, that is the path to build and gain momentum of developing a spiritual discipline. Right. Okay. Makes sense. Yeah. So it's those easy things that you know you can accomplish to focus on that. It also helps to be aware of the real impact that doing a mitzvah has or the negative impact that doing an avera sin has it's when it's left to a general sense of morality and kind of relegated to the realm of guilt of i should be doing this i should be doing that it's harder to motivate ourselves it brings up a lot of resentment um you know don't tell me what to do kind of thing and for many people it can be helpful to recognize that there is a direct impact from all of our actions. For example, in this last week's parsha, Parshas Re'eh, which by the way, it's not a coincidence, Parshas Re'eh always comes out 
the week before Elul. It's always Shabbos and Varchim Elul. And the Shalah HaKadosh, the great sage, the, the Shalah, wrote that every single parasha that comes out, if it comes out in a certain time of the week, if it comes out in a certain time of the year, it has a significance to that energy. And there's a lesson in that parasha for that time of the year. So right toward the beginning of the parasha, we have instructions that when we enter the land of Israel, we need to go in and eradicate all of the idolatry. And it's very specific. Destroy the altars, take down the temples, all these statues, break them down, burn the, the idolatrous trees. Very extensive list of how we need to eliminate all of these things. And at the end of it, the Torah says, don't do these things to Hashem, your God. Which ostensibly the mitzvah is, you know, don't break the altar and don't uh, destroy the temple. Well, right, exactly. Okay, <laughs> I can do that, right? So Rashi brings the Sifri, which is a, a medrash, that, that brings that up. That, that Was this really necessary? You have to tell the Jewish people, don't destroy the Beis HaMikdash. Don't break it. Most Jews aren't running around burning down synagogues. Right. And we don't really have a desire to do that even. It's not, like, it's not something that we need to be driven away from. And so the sages say what it really means is don't do the things that would cause the destruction of the Beis HaMikdash to happen. Because we think that we're just running in and breaking these things down. It's because the people who were living there in those times were wicked. They were evil. They were going astray. And they deserved for their entire life to be collapsed. Hashem commanded the Jewish people, gave us the power and the ability to go in there and destroy it. And Hashem says, watch yourself. This could happen to you. If you start to go astray and don't behave properly, then it will cause these things to happen to your synagogues and study halls and the temple in Jerusalem. Don't do those things that cause it. Now, here's the thing. The Gemara, the Talmud, says that on this verse, don't do these things to Hashem, your God. The Talmud says it means specifically don't do them, but things that cause it would be okay, which seems to be a direct contradiction to what we right. just said. Yeah. So Rav Aaron Cutler, Zatzal, the great Rosh Hashiva who started Lakewood Yeshiva, he wrote that don't think that these sins that we're doing are some tangential cause of the destruction of the temple. That is the destruction. Whenever This falls back to a more fundamental concept of reward and punishment and the, the ramifications of our free will. And we tend to think of, you know, free will becomes relevant when there are consequences for our actions. And so if we do good things, good things will happen. And if we do bad things, then we'll be punished. So, but we, we also tend to think of the punishment as something that's a retaliation, that I do something wrong. Hashem doesn't like that. And because Hashem doesn't like that, so then Hashem decides to give us a punishment. But our Kabbalists tell us that that's not how it works. The punishment is the effect of the sin itself. And the fact that it might not happen right away is due to a trait of mercy that Hashem has called erech apayim, delays his anger. And that does two things. A, it gives us the ability to have free will, right? Because if we would see instant consequences for all of our actions, then there wouldn't be much room for... Right, constant lightning bolts out of the sky would not... Uh... No one would do anything wrong at right, that point. exactly. So it, it gives room for free will. And it also gives us a chance to rectify things before, before the destruction comes. It gives us a chance for tshuva, which is extraordinarily valuable. However, it's also a big liability because if we ruin that chance, 
then there's even more of a claim on us. You had this extra time, you didn't do it. And also Hashem is holding back this distortion that you've created in the heavens. He's holding it there in the heavens and not allowing it to take effect. And that is a distortion of the heavens as well. So all of these things will be held against us if we don't take this opportunity, which is pretty serious. The stakes are very high. And so therefore, will we recognize that the things that we're doing in our lives, our sins, they don't just personally bring us down, they're breaking the world. And as a Jew, we have an unfathomable power and responsibility of how we affect all of reality. We, we just don't appreciate enough. The stakes are very high. Now, having said that, on the negative side, on the positive side, as we know, it's always much, much greater. The mitzvahs that we do build the world. Chazal, our sages, give an analogy that there's a, a lord who's a landowner and he has this great orchard and he hires a sharecropper to come and take care of his crops. And as they're walking together, here you have this lord who's nobility and he's walking together with this lowly employee and the employee feels embarrassed to be walking with this aristocrat and he's kind of holding back and behind him. And the lord tells this lowly sharecropper, he says, why are, you, why are you ashamed and embarrassed? We're equals here. Okay, I planted this, but you did all the work. You raised the crops and you watered them and tended right. to them and guarded it. And this wouldn't be here without you. So we're, we're equals here. Don't feel ashamed. Our sages say this, the same is with Hashem. In Gan Eden, Hashem will be, so to speak, walking with the righteous people, with the tzaddikim. And the tzaddikim will feel embarrassed to be in Hashem's presence. And Hashem says, why, why are you embarrassed? We're equals here. You have helped to create this. Okay, I planted it. I started this whole process, and, but you did the work. And you, with your actions, built Olam Haba, built the world to come. So when we recognize how powerful it is to do these mitzvahs, it gives us a little bit more of an inspiration to, to work harder. So also on the topic of, of free will, which is, that is our tool. That is the only thing that we have, is our free will, because everything else has been built in. Our feelings and our emotional state and our natural talents and skills, all of these things were determined for us by, by God. Right. The only thing that's truly you, that's within your hands, with your power, is your integrity, your ability to enact your ethics. And that's what we really need to be focusing on. And that's what sometimes it's difficult to appreciate that we really have that ability at all. You know, the prophet Yeshaya says, Yashiv Yazov Rosha Darko, Ish Oven He says that the wicked person should abandon his path. And the man of sin should abandon his thoughts. And return to Hashem and he'll be merciful on you. And to our God because he is he's greatly forgiving. So great. I mean, that sounds like a very standard prophet thing to say. Right. Stop doing bad things right. and return to Hashem. Yeah. But what really piques our interest is the next verse. And this is a, quite a common verse. The next verse is, Because my thoughts are not your thoughts, and your ways are not my ways, says Hashem. Which, if you understand it very simply in this context, it sounds like, it sounds like if you put it together, the wicked person should stop doing bad things, because that's not Hashem's ways. Because you're thinking 
in a bad way and you're behaving in a bad way and Hashem's right. ways are different than that. But the issue is that that verse, that Hashem's thoughts are not our thoughts and His ways are not our ways, the Rambam and many other commentators use this verse to illustrate a very fundamental philosophical concept that it's not just that we behave incorrectly and Hashem's ways are holier. It's that we are fundamentally different than Hashem. It's not that our, we, I could be thinking Hashem's thoughts. It's we cannot be thinking Hashem's thoughts. Hashem's thoughts are inherently not like ours and Hashem's ways are inherently not like ours in the sense that, for example, there's a microphone in front of me. I know that because I can see it. In other words, the microphone is here and therefore because it's here, I know about it. I have sensory input and, and my knowledge of the microphone is a result of the microphone's existence. But with Hashem, it's the opposite. The microphone is here because Hashem knows it's here. Right. And so there, there's a fundamental difference between the way we know things and the way we think about things and the way Hashem does. And we're constantly superimposing our conceptions of these things onto Hashem, which makes sense because that's the only way we can relate to Hashem is through the tools that we have. But we have to understand this, this paradox that even though we're meant to relate to Hashem, we have to know that Hashem is inherently unrelatable. And specifically in the following context that the Rambam brings out, a person might think, how is my free will ever relevant? If Hashem knows everything, that means Hashem knows what I'm going to do tomorrow or in 30 seconds from now. And so therefore, whether or not I choose to do this mitzvah or not do this mitzvah or to do this avera, it's essentially predestined because if Hashem knows it already, that means it's built into reality before I've even made the decision. And how could I possibly be held accountable for that decision? And how could it possibly be me? Like we were saying earlier, this has all been pre-programmed and I'm just in the driver's seat with this illusion that I have the free will, but really I'm just playing out this scene that Hashem has already written for me. That's what a person might think. Right, but which is, it's like if someone could go back in time and observe something that happened in history, just because we know what the outcome is, because we're from the future, doesn't mean that that's taking away the free will of the people in the moment and the decisions they're making. Very good. That's, that's a perfectly fine answer. And essentially what you're saying, it boils down to Hashem. It, it's not that Hashem looks into the future and knows what we're going to do. Hashem is outside of time. Hashem's knowledge is not like our knowledge. Hashem's thoughts are not like our thoughts. Hashem doesn't perceive things in the way we do, that there's a past, present, and future from our perspective, veiled, built, tethered to a timeline, and our perception of reality is cut off. We can't see the future. We, we are stuck in this one snapshot in time. Hashem is not. And therefore, like you said, you could imagine that Hashem is an observer. Now, the truth is, it, it's not that simple either. It can't be. Because like we said before with the microphone, right? The microphone is here because Hashem knows it's here. The real issue of Hashem's knowledge and our free will is, is much more problematic, truthfully. In other words, I am only here because Hashem is willing me into existence. My every thought, my every particle in my body is the active will of God bringing me into existence. I cannot think or do or anything outside of what Hashem is willing me into existence at this moment. So how could I possibly do anything that defies his will if my very existence and everything that I'm capable of is a product of his will? So that's really the issue. Um, I still don't see why that's an issue, though, because 
He is creating us in this very moment. But in each moment, though, we he still gives us that free will choice on what we choose to think about, what we choose to say, and what we choose to do. But how, how could that be? I'll give you, you know, here's an example. Imagine a boy in your mind. Okay, and this boy's sitting under a tree. He, he's eating an apple. And let's say you don't want the boy to eat from this other tree that you're imagining. Okay, so can that boy eat from that tree? Can he defy your will? No, that's the difference between my imagination and Hashem's. But, so why not? But why, why can't that boy eat from that tree? Because he doesn't have free will. The one I created in my mind. Why not? Because he's not independent of me. Are we independent of Hashem? This is the problem. We right. don't exist outside of Hashem. We, we are very similar, of course not the same, we're very similar to that boy because our entire existence is a product of Hashem's willing us into existence. That boy only exists as long as you are thinking about him. Yes, but that's why he didn't create us as one entity. He created us as two entities, a body going in one direction and then a shama wants to go in a different direction. That's why there, he didn't just create us as, as one being, right? That's the whole reason true, he created True, but everything within existence is a creation. Right, true. The body and the soul. Right. So it all falls into this one problem. Right. The, the Rambam addresses this and he says the truth is to truly answer this question is, is completely beyond our comprehension. And it, it boils down to a matter of faith that Hashem says we have free will, we have the ability to, to do it. It is possible to gain some understanding of this, but he says it requires a, a very deep level of Kabbalah to understand what it really means that we are created in the image of God, that we have a godliness attached to us, and that really is what imbues us with the power of will, which is a godly power. Quite fascinating. Anyway, I didn't want to get into so much of a, a deep philosophical discussion, but the point is that he uses this verse, the Rambam uses this verse, that Hashem's thoughts are not like our thoughts, to illustrate this concept. That a person might think, well, I have no free will because Hashem knows what I'm going to do. But the truth is that Hashem doesn't think like we do. And Hashem's knowledge, so to speak, of what I'm going to do has no bearing on my ability to make decisions and decide things for myself. Gotcha. Okay. So now understanding that that's the depth of this verse, let's return to the context of what the prophet is saying. The prophet says the wicked person should abandon his ways. The sinful person should abandon his thoughts and return to Hashem. Hashem will forgive you. Hashem will be merciful on you. The next verse, because Hashem's thoughts are not like your thoughts. So what's the because? Yeah, it, it seems like two different pieces of messages bound together that aren't related. <laughs> right. Now, now it becomes more difficult to understand. So some have, have suggested that what this means is the wicked person might feel a sense of despair. Like, what's the point? How can I possibly do anything about my life? This is who I am. And Hashem's sending the message saying, but your thoughts and my thoughts are very different. Don't think that you are locked in to who you are. You have this ability for free will. Because if, if the message of that philosophical message of my thoughts are different than Hashem's thoughts is meant to teach me the lesson that my free will is relevant. Hashem... Hashem's knowledge of what I'm going to do does not change my ability to take control of my life and decide who I want to be, then that gives me the power to make those decisions to make those decisions and to become the person that I need to become. And so therefore, a person should, the wicked person should change his ways. Because you are not destined to be like this. You have no excuse to say, well, look, this is how Hashem made me. 
these are my challenges and that's just how I'm going to be forever and this is my life and what can I do? That's just who I am. No, you have the ability for free will. You can really change. The problem is we just don't really feel like it, <laughs> right? right. That's, that's the issue. We, we, we're very comfortable. And if we would only know, A, what we spoke about before, the impact, the tremendous impact that we could be having of building the world, it's not just about us and what we should be doing, what we should not be doing because it's the right thing to do, not the right thing to do. The truth is that should be enough. That should be enough motivation. But if it's not, we can go deeper and realize that we have tremendous power to be building worlds, not just here in this world, the effect that we have on other people around us, which is also true, but on all of the spiritual realms, we are literally building reality with our good deeds and we are destroying reality with our private bad deeds as well. And being aware of those high stakes can jumpstart us into action. But again, like we said, start slow, start small. Things that are easy, take care of that first. The best way to change is to really get excited about it. Here's an option. Here's your ability. And in Elul, we have an extra boost that Hashem gives us an extra level of normally. Whenever we try to make moves, there's always resistance. The Yitzhahara is pushing back. There are boundaries that are put into place that lock us into where we're, where we're at right now, that keep us bound within our inertia of not moving. If we try to push forward, we get pushed back hard. In Elul, a lot of these boundaries are removed. And the thing, you ever heard about how they train elephants in the circus right, not to run they, away? When they're a little baby, they, they tie their leg to a chain, right? Mm-hmm. And they can't move it. They can't pull away from it. And by the time the elephant is a large elephant that could easily do so, it's conditioned itself to think it can't exactly. do so. Yeah. So especially, this is especially true in Elul. Throughout the year, we try to make moves. We try to change ourselves. And we see that we're unsuccessful. And we can only accomplish maybe a little bit, not very encouraging. In Elul, if we just try, if we just put in a little bit of effort, we just try again, we'll realize we can tear that chain out of the ground. Elul is a tremendous time of extra power for growth and change. Hashem says, look, this next month, I'm going to judge you. I'm going to see how you're doing. I'm going to check in on you and define you as a person and see this is who you are. But that's not going to come without the opportunity, this tremendous, loving, merciful opportunity for giving you tremendous ability to change yourself, to transform yourself into whoever you want to be. I'm going to judge you, but I'm going to let you decide who you are first. And so we, all these barriers are removed. And if we just try, just put in the effort, we will find, I promise you will find that if you put in that effort, even just a little bit, you can make great moves. Great. Well, one more thing I'd like some clarification on, you know, a lot of the themes you just mentioned are also relevant in the month of Nissan during Pesach. Sort of because that month is all about like this additional influx of uh, being able to jump and really move forward in our growth. What is the distinction between now and in that period in the year? Good. Pesach is about inspiration. Pesach is about knowing what's possible. You can jump really high, but you can't stay there. And after that's just a way of, of testing the limits and seeing how far you can really go and seeing what's possible and giving yourself a taste of living on a very high level with Hashem. But after that, it all goes away and then you have to work and start from scratch and it's hard. This is real, actual change. 
This is something that you can hold on to for the rest of your life. You can actually right now redefine yourself and there is much less resistance in the process itself of real consistent and permanent growth. And th that's why this is a, this is a tremendous opportunity here. Great. Fantastic. Thank you, Rabbi. Anything else you'd like to add? I think what you've mentioned so far is very helpful. Any other ideas? Sure. One final idea. Our sages say that the name for the month, Elul, which is Aleph Lamed, Vav Lamed, this is very commonly said over. It's a reference to a verse. It's a hint to a verse in, in the prophet that says, Ani ledodi vedodi li, that I am for my beloved, my beloved is for me. And so we, we have been talking about, up until now, God in a very godly way, so to speak, right? That uh, this very awesome and distant creator of the universe and coming coming back to this lofty divinity. This opportunity for change and growth is coming from a trait that Hashem wants us very intimately to connect to Him on a personal level, and it's all through love. And if we can inspire ourselves to love God and realize that Hashem loves us more than we could possibly understand, to the maximum. But the strength of a relationship is only as strong as the person who wants it the least. The more we can, if we only realize that the entire purpose of our life is God loves us so much and just wants us to love him back. That's the first line of the Shema. Shema Yisrael Hashem Elokeinu Hashem Echad Ve'ahavtos Hashem Elokeicha. Right. Love God. Just love him back. Just, he just wants us to love him back. Reciprocate. That, that'll drive everything. That'll give us all the energy we need. Right. To contemplate this idea of, of the immense love Hashem has for us, that is very motivating because we just want to give him nachas. We want to like do a good job for him while we're here and take this opportunity to, to fulfill his will. So... That, that's fantastic. Thank you, Rabbi. My pleasure. Coach Rabbi, once again, appreciate uh, all your input and all your help guiding us to this upcoming month. Thank you for having me. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider supporting Torch so they can continue to spread Torah wisdom to the world by making a donation at torchweb.org and clicking donate in the top right corner of the page. And if you would like to get in contact with our host with comments, suggestions for future topics of learning, or questions for him or his guest rabbis, you may email him at president at torchweb.org.